0: Lord, we would not uh, be cavalier about opening up your precious word. Lord, we believe that this is the word, the very word of the living God, the word sent from heaven. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the precious truths that are in it. I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us as a church in true spiritual joy and that you'd help us to experience that more and more. So, Lord, may your spirit come and minister and move today upon your church. In Jesus' name, amen. What we rejoice in reveals what we value most in life. What you and I rejoice in most will reveal what we value most in life. So I want you to do a a little test this morning and think back to this last week. Last seven days, since we met here last Sunday, what are the things that you rejoiced in the most this last week? Does anything come to mind? Something that gave you joy? Maybe it was going out to dinner with your spouse, or maybe it was buying some new possession, maybe it was a phone or a tablet or new clothes or something, or maybe it was catching up with an old friend. We had the privilege of catching up with a friend that we hadn't seen in about 15 years. That was really cool. But those are you know, those are great things to rejoice in, but there is something even greater. There are many things that are more greater than that for us to rejoice in, and the text this morning is going to reveal spiritual joy, three kinds of spiritual joy that the Lord would have us to experience and to walk in. Now, remember the context of Luke chapter 10. Jesus has just appointed and sent out 70 of his disciples to preach the kingdom, to heal the sick, and they also discovered that they were able to cast out demons. And so he sent them out into all these cities and villages where he was to come later. As they went, they discovered that as they did the Lord's will, the Lord was present with them, and great power accompanied them, and they were rejoicing over that. But they also found that people were rejecting them. And the Lord had prepared them for that. He said, if they don't listen to you, you know that they have rejected me. And if they reject me, you know that they've rejected my Father who is in heaven. So to prepare them, he's saying, if people reject you on this mission, don't take it too personally. Because what they're really doing is not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And if the truth were known, it goes even deeper than that, they're rejecting God. And do you remember last week we focused in on the fact that those cities and villages that had the ministry of Christ and the ministry of his disciples to them and then rejected it, Jesus said it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for wicked cities like Sodom that God destroyed with fire and brimstone. It's going to be more tolerable in hell for certain people who didn't have the same light that other people did, like the the disciples that went out and preached the gospel to the 70 different villages. Um, Those people in those cities like Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin had much greater knowledge and much greater light, but yet they rejected it. And so Jesus says in the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom than for you. So the disciples had this on their minds. They went out knowing that they're probably going to be rejected, and they were by plenty of people. Jesus had also been trying to prepare them by teaching them the rigors and the hardship of discipleship. Do you remember back in chapter 9, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, if you're going to follow me, follow me into the way of death. You've got to be willing to die. Die to self, die to the old life, and if necessary, die physically. Take up your cross. He'd also taught them in the end of chapter 9 about three men who were would-be disciples. Two of them volunteered to follow Jesus, and one, Jesus, asked to follow him. But we find in that account of these three would-be disciples that none of them were ready. None of them were ready to lay it all down and make Jesus Christ and his kingdom first in their life. There was something that was coming before it. And so Christ has been teaching about the rigors and the hardships and the sacrifices necessary to be a true disciple of his. So you'd think that the disciples by this time might have heavy heads hanging low, kind of depressed, thinking, oh man, what have I got myself in for? Sacrifice and rigors and hardship and rejection. But we find the exact opposite when we come to them coming back from this mission. They're ecstatic. They're excited and thrilled because they say, Lord, you're not going to believe what happened to us. (laughs) When we went out and we were... Using your name, even the demons were obeying us. Lord, you should have been there. It was so cool. It was awesome. So they came back full of joy, quite to the opposite of what we might have expected. Now, what I want you to notice in the text is the word joy or rejoice. It appears four times, but in those four different instances of joy or rejoice, in this text, we find three different kinds of spiritual joy. Look at verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Verse 20. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There's our second kind of joy. Thirdly, verse 21. At that very hour, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well pleasing in your sight. So we have three kinds of joy here. The good joy, rejoicing in success. The greater joy, rejoicing in salvation. Verse 20. And then the greatest joy. Verse 21. Rejoicing in sovereignty, or in other words, rejoicing in God himself, apart from anything that he does for us. So rejoicing in success, rejoicing in salvation, rejoicing in sovereignty. Let's look at the first one, the good joy, verse 17 to 19. Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what does the Lord respond in verse 18? He says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, what a strange response. Have you ever scratched your head thinking, why did he say that? What in the world? And there's lots of different interpretations of what that may have meant. Let me just paraphrase for you what I think was going on in Jesus' mind when he said that. He said, as you guys were going out to all those various villages, preaching, healing, casting out demons especially, I was watching and I was getting a preview of coming attractions. I was seeing sort of a, a vista, a historical vista of what's going to be taking place between now and when I come back. As a result of my death and my resurrection and my ascension to the right hand of God and pouring out the Holy Spirit, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Do you remember when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 were converted, a couple chapters later in Acts, 5,000 are converted, and then a great number of priests by chapter 6 are converted, and the kingdom of Jesus is expanding and growing, and Satan's kingdom is getting less and less and less. Jesus' kingdom grows, Satan's kingdom falls, and it wasn't just a few Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus was talking about. He knows that this gospel of the kingdom is going to go to the uttermost parts of the world so that Christ is going to save out of it men from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. Every place on this globe, there's going to be a sample, a sampling of redeemed people brought under the feet of Jesus Christ and Satan's going to lose those people so his kingdom's going to start to crumble. And so as the gospel goes forward, by the time Christ comes back, There is going to be a great crushing blow to Satan's kingdom. Satan's day is over. Jesus' day is coming. Now in the Old Testament, Satan really had control over almost all of the world, except for this one group of people called the Jews or Israel. They had the light of the truth, the Old Testament revelation that God had given. All the other nations were in darkness. Satan ruled over them. Jesus said that's coming to an end. That's coming to an end. My gospel is going to go to these four corners of the world and is going to redeem out a a people from everywhere on this globe. So I was watching Satan fall from lightning. The way you just cast out those demons, that's just a, a preview, a foretaste of what's ahead. Satan's going to lose his grip. I'm going to be victorious throughout the world. And then in verse 19, he says, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Serpents and scorpions. Is he talking about literal serpents? I've given you authority to walk upon these serpents, and they're not going to bite you or hurt you? Well, I guess you might say that. I mean, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus said that his people will pick up serpents, deadly serpents, and they will not injure you. And that did happen to Paul on the island of Maltus in Acts chapter 27, I think, or 28, one of those two chapters. (laughs) But I I really don't think that's what he has in mind because he calls these serpents and scorpions, and then he says, and over all the power of the enemy. Well, who's the enemy? Satan, the one he just mentioned in verse 18. Remember that... (laughs) Satan is called that great old serpent, in Revelation 12, 9. We first find Satan working in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of a serpent. And so when he talks about treading upon serpents and scorpions, he's talking about Satan and his demonic hosts, the powers of hell. You're going to be able to tread on them, and they're not going to be able to injure you. Now, why would he refer to Satan and his host as scorpions? You've, have you ever seen a scorpion? I was cleaning windows one day, and this big old scorpion walked right by me. I go, "Whoa!" You know, because I knew those things are pretty deadly. There are there's a lot of different species of scorpions, but about um, a small minority of them are able to inflict through their tail this venomous sting that has actually um, is fatal. It can kill a person. So they're they're deadly. It's painful. Serpents and scorpions are usually those kinds of things that we don't like to hang around. They're loathsome, they're ugly, they're repugnant to us, and they're a good emblem for Satan and his demons. Ugly, loathsome, repulsive, hurtful, destructive. I think it fits pretty well. And so Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority. Now wait a minute. How did he give him authority? Look back at verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us, how? In your name. That's the authority that they were using to cast out these demons. And so Jesus says, I've given you authority. I've given you my name to use as authority to tread upon these serpents and these scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. I'm one of those guys who actually believe that this verse is true for us today. We still have the name of Jesus, we can still pray using the name of Jesus. If we are confronted with someone who's demon-possessed, we can cast that demon out in the name of Jesus. Now, we think that's kind of crazy because we live in the United States and we don't see very many demon-possessed people. Now, nearly like if you were to go back to Palestine in the first century, that was one of the biggest parts of Jesus' ministry, casting out demons. But if you go to places in the world, third world countries, where the gospel has not penetrated very much, you'll see a lot more demon-possession. And we probably see it here, though it's kind of camouflaged. So I believe that this is a promise that is still true for us today. Jesus has given us authority to tread on the power of the enemy. And we also have this promise here, and nothing will injure you. Nothing will injure you. Now Satan is going to want to try to injure you. He'll do his best. He'll inflict blows against you but he can't really injure you if you're a child of God. Did you know that Satan has a, a, a level of power and a level of authority, but that power and that authority that he exercises is under the authority of God Almighty. That he has to get permission for whatever he does. Can you think back to somebody who had to, where, where Satan had to get permission? Job, that's right, that's right. Someone said Hebrews? Oh, Peter. That's another good one. Yeah. Um, Jesus came to Peter and said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you so that your faith would not fail and that once you've been restored, you'll strengthen your brothers. So we have the case of Job. We have the case of Peter. We also have the case of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when a messenger of Satan came to buffet him. And God allowed that messenger of Satan to buffet him so that he would not be exalted above measure because he was given all these revelations. And God wanted to keep his servant humble. So he allowed this messenger of Satan. Now, we don't know what that messenger of Satan was. There's lots of different speculation out there. We don't need to know. All we know is that it was something from Satan that God allowed to do a particular work in Paul's life. So, God is going to allow Satan to do certain things to his children, but only to refine them, only so that they would be sanctified, only so that they will grow in faith. So, at the very end, they haven't been injured at all. They've been helped along their way to heaven. They've actually been helped. So, what a wonderful promise. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that the devil's like a roaring lion prowling about seeking for someone to devour so yes the devil's real the devil has power the devil's around there tempting people and doing as much mischief as he can but he's a lion on chains he's chained up he can only go as far let, as god lets him go he's really god's devil not god's rival if he only knew that all he was able to do is to accomplish god's purposes he'd probably just give up right now He's just furthering God's ends. So here we find that beautiful promise that Satan is not going to be able to injure God's people. Now, Jesus does say in verse 20, let's look at that, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So is Jesus saying that it's evil for us to rejoice in success? These folks had come back from their ministries, and they'd been successful. The demons were subject. I mean, think about someone who had been terrorized by a demon for month after month, year after year, and then all of a sudden that demon is cast out, and they're free. Wouldn't you, wouldn't that be a beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful thing for someone to experience? And here the disciples were privileged to be able to see lives transformed satan cast out and then being just totally free that's a beautiful thing so i don't think jesus is saying that it's wrong for you to rejoice in being successful in ministry i think he's comparing it to the next kind of joy which is so far better that he's saying nevertheless don't rejoice so much over here i mean that's fine but what i really want you to see is a much greater joy over here rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven Have you ever experienced this first kind of joy before? Joy and success. Like maybe God has given you some kind of a ministry. Maybe you witnessed to someone about Christ. You shared the gospel with somebody and they actually responded. They were actually converted. (laughs) And what joy there is in that. Have you ever been around when that's happened? That is so, so cool. It's wonderful. Or maybe there was somebody sick and you just took God's word and you laid hands on that person and prayed and they were healed. That's a wonderful thing. Or maybe there was a couple whose marriage was uh, it was going through very difficult times and so you ministered to them and you counseled them and God used that to restore their marriage. Those are beautiful things. And it's not wrong for us <clears throat> to rejoice in success in ministry. He's just saying there's a better kind of joy there's a better kind of joy. And that he wants us to experience all of God's joy. But not only is this a beautiful thing to have success in ministry, it's also a dangerous thing. It's dangerous because we can tend to look for our joy and our identity in that particular ministry that God has given to us rather than in the Lord himself. In other words, we can start loving what we do Rather, or more than loving the Lord who gave us the ministry, I don't know if you can relate to that or not, but I know a lot of pastors can relate to that. Um, you, we tend to look for our identity in this thing that we do, rather than in the Lord Himself. So that's a danger. Pastors are susceptible. You know, we 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 can find our joy in how many baptisms have we had this year? You know, how much has the church grown over the last year? Uh, How's the membership doing? Things like that. And we look to these external things for our joy. But what happens when you preach that hard message and a lot of people leave? Or if there's no baptisms that year? What happens? Do you have no joy? Well, not if your joy is in the Lord. You still have joy no matter what's happening around you. Just like we were talking about earlier, whether you see no fruit at all, we can still have joy in Christ. So there are dangers to this kind of joy. Even though it is legitimate, for us to find joy in the things that are taking place in the Lord's work. Okay, so that's the first kind of joy. Joy and success. And we can call that the good joy, but let's take a step up. The greater joy. Verse 20. Joy in salvation. Look at what Jesus says there. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. This is the greater joy than joy and success in serving the Lord. Now, there are some differences here. Joy and success is joy based on what I have done for the Lord. My accomplishments for the Lord. I have served the Lord. I've cast out demons in his name. I've preached the gospel. I've witnessed to somebody. I've prayed for the sick. It's something that I have done, right? Well, joy and salvation is something, it's joy and something that the Lord has done for me. It's got nothing to do with what I've done. It's got everything to do with what God has done for me. And so this is a greater joy altogether. Now, Jesus says, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. It's really important to notice the verbs there. Are recorded, it's perfect passive. Now, you guys know what passive means, right? You're not doing anything. Something is being done to you. Something is being acted upon you. You're not acting upon something. It's acting upon you. And the perfect tense in Greek goes like this. It's a past action with ongoing results. So put this together. You didn't write your name in heaven. Somebody else wrote it on your behalf. God Almighty wrote your name down in the book of life. You were passive in that. And it's a perfect tense thing, meaning that God did it some some point in the past, and it has ongoing results, meaning your name has been and stands forever recorded in heaven. That's the literal meaning of this Greek tense, the perfect passive. So your names have been and forever stand recorded in heaven. Now he's talking here about the book of life. Did you know the Bible talks about a book in which certain people's names have been recorded. We find a bunch of references to this particular book. In the book of Revelation. And I want to read to you four different passages. From the book of Revelation. That give us some insight into this book of life. The first is Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now. There was a time when I would read this verse and think that the Lord was threatening them or warning them. Unless you overcome, I'm going to erase your name from the book of life. But that's backwards from what is actually stated here. He's not saying, you have to overcome or this is what I'm going to do. He's saying, the one who does overcome, his name will never be erased from the book of life. <clears throat> in other words, he has security in his salvation. It's secure. It's secure. Now, who's the one who overcomes? According to 1 John 5. He who overcomes the world is the one who has faith. That's the victory that we have, even our faith. This is the true believer. The one who endures in faith to the end. That person overcomes. And Jesus says, I have a a promise for you. This isn't a threatening. This isn't a warning. Whenever you get to the end of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3... He gives promises to people who overcome. So here's the promise. If you overcome, if you endure in faith to the end, I'll never, ever, forever, for all time, I'll never erase your name from the book of life. Meaning that if you enter into paradise with God, He's never going to cast you out. You are secure. He's never going to erase your name from the book of life and say, that's it. Out with you. You have this security with Christ for all time, for time and eternity. So the first one has to do with security. He who overcomes, I'll not erase his name from the book of life. And then the second one, Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast... Everyone whose name, now it doesn't say beast here, but if you look at the context, that's actually what he's talking about. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. There's a couple of things to notice here. Some people's names were written in this book, and certain people's names were not written in that book. Do you see that from the text? Whose names weren't written? What, how do you know who they are according to that verse? They worship the beast. Now, we're not going to go into any explanation of what that is because we've probably got I don't know, 25 different interpretations of what the beast is. So. But we can know that the, the beast has to do with Satan. We know that much from earlier in chapter 13. Okay, so people who actually follow Satan, they follow sin, they die in their sin without faith in Jesus Christ, their names were not put in this book. The second thing we learn is that their names, certain names were put in that book, and they were put in that book from the foundation of the earth. From the time God made the world, He recorded their names. Now, I don't know if there's any kind of a literal book, probably not, but it stands for God's memory. God knows those who are His. He has indelibly inscribed them on his heart. Remember the high priest of Israel? He would intercede for the people of Israel and he'd have on this breast piece the names of all the tribes. Well, Jesus is our high priest and he has the names of his people inscribed on his heart and they're the ones that he intercedes for at the right hand of God the Father. So that's what we learn about the book of life here. Certain people's names were written, certain weren't. And those who were written, they had their name written from the foundation of the earth. Okay, the next verse is chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. He was cast into hell. The lake of fire being that plate, that eternal place of conscious torment is what we learn through the rest of scriptures about the lake of fire. The last one is Revelation 21, 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. That is into paradise, into this new heavens and the new earth. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if we take these verses from the book of Revelation, what do we know about this book? Well, we know that if you overcome, your name's never going to be erased from it. We know secondly, that some people's names were written in it and some people's weren't. We know, thirdly, that if your name was written in it, it was written from the foundation of the world, not after you exercised your free will or put your faith in Christ, way before that. We also know that if your name was not written in it, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire from Revelation 20.15. And we also know that if your name is written in it, you are going to be able to come into paradise, but if your name is not written in it, you will not be able to enter into paradise. That's what we learn from the scriptures here in the book of Revelation. So, but when Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, rejoice that your name is in heaven. You're saved. You're secure. You have paradise await you. You never have to fear hell and you never have to fear that God will disown you anytime in the future. That's what he's saying that we are to rejoice in. What exalted privileges, huh? Look down at verse 23 and 24. Turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see, and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. Many prophets and kings. Now what's he referring to? Where, When did these prophets and kings live? Well, in the Old Testament, right? He's saying that the great prophets like David and Solomon... Uh, The great kings, I should say, like David and Solomon, and the great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, these men long to see the the very thing that you're seeing right before your eyes. And they long to hear the words that you're hearing, the words of the gospel. It was as though Jesus were to say to them, do you know how privileged you are? The Son of God himself is right in front of you, speaking the words of everlasting life to you. Do you know your privileges? What if Jesus were to walk right up to you, look you in the eye and say, your name is recorded in heaven? How would that make you feel? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord. What privilege for the Lord. And that's what the Lord is doing to these 70. Your names are recorded in heaven. So he's telling them that they are to rejoice in salvation. Not just in the success they've had in their ministry by going out and casting out demons. Rejoice that God, before the foundation of the world, wrote your names in the book of life. You're not going to face the lake of fire. You're going to face everlasting life and paradise with him. Now, let's ask ourselves this question. Why is this a greater joy than the first kind of joy? Well, how often do we have success in ministry? Is it always? No. (laughs) I wish it was. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you always went out and everyone you... Witnessed to or preached to was converted. That would be so awesome. But no, it it rarely happens that way. And when I pray for the sick, just to be honest with you, I rarely see healings. Uh, Success in ministry does not happen on a constant basis. But if you're saved, you are always saved. You're constantly saved. There is no fluctuation in your salvation. You can rejoice in this every single day of your life. And we ought to. Every day of our life, if we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and King and treasure, we ought to be rejoicing. Because we are saved, our names are recorded in heaven. Another reason why we should have greater joy that our names are recorded in heaven, that we can cast out demons, is because casting out demons is not a proof that you're saved. There's no proof. Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty two. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now the Lord does not argue with them and say, no, you never cast out any demons. I believe they did. I believe Judas cast out demons. Judas was given the same authority as the other 11 apostles to go and cast out demons. But Judas went to his own place. Judas didn't end up in heaven. And then he says to them, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Not, I knew you once and then I sort of lost that knowledge of you. I never had it. I never had this knowledge of you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here are people who cast out demons that are not saved. They're cast out of the presence of Jesus Christ. So I just want to encourage you this morning. Yes, when you're successful in ministry and you see fruit happening, that's wonderful. Go ahead and rejoice in that. But I want to encourage you to rejoice in your salvation. You know, get up in the morning and say, Lord, thank you that you saved me. I I can't think of a better thing to rejoice in than that. That my soul is safe and secure. My sins are gone. I've been forgiven of every sin I've ever committed. My past is wiped out. You've blotted out my sins like a great cloud. Thank you, Lord, that there's peace between you and me. I could still be in this other crowd over here. It could have been that my name was not recorded in heaven, but I thank you that you recorded it, Lord, and that you saved me. What would happen if all of us came to church on a Sunday morning fresh from a time of rejoicing in our salvation, and then we started to sing? Don't you think it would would be kind of explosive around here? That it would be more than people just standing and Singing songs. That it would be heartfelt and passionate. I believe that's the kind of praise the Lord delights in. Is heartfelt and passionate praise. We're going to find in verse 21 that Jesus was rejoicing. And the fruit of his rejoicing was praise. Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And then he began to praise his father for something. So let's go ahead and let's move to this third kind of joy. Not good joy, not greater joy, greatest joy, joy and sovereignty here. Verse 21 and 22. Let's look at verse 21. At that very time, he, Christ, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now let's get a, a glimpse of what's going on. Jesus has just been instructing his disciples, hasn't he? It's okay to rejoice in this, but I want to get your eyes focused on this thing over here. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So he's instructing the 70 disciples as they come back. And all of a sudden, he stops talking to his disciples And he starts talking to God. Without any, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, he just starts praying like that. And it says in verse 21, at that very time he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This is the only time where we have an instance in scripture of Jesus rejoicing. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't rejoice at other times. I believe that he was constantly rejoicing. This is the only time we're told in scripture that he rejoiced in a particular situation. And it wasn't just any rejoicing. He rejoiced greatly. So he's exulting. He's thrilled by something. And he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. So this is spiritual rejoicing. The Holy Spirit is bringing wave upon wave of spiritual joy to Christ as he's meditating on something. And what's Jesus meditating on? Well, we'll get to that in just in a minute, but notice the title that he ascribes to God here. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. If someone is the Lord of heaven and earth, that means they are the supreme Lord over everything. Over the heavens? over the earth, over the universe. So when Jesus ascribes to God, you are the Lord of heaven and earth, he's saying, Lord, you are the sovereign one over all. You are the sovereign king. You are supreme. No one can compare with you. No one can rival you. And then notice what he says. I praise you because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you've revealed them to infants. So he's praising God that God has hidden certain things from some people and he's revealed certain things to other people do you see that in the text I'm not making this up am I I'm just telling you what it says he hid he revealed and he's praising God for that because he's Lord of heaven and earth now who are the wise and intelligent that God hid these things from I believe he's talking about the things of salvation some people had the blinders on they couldn't see them The wise and intelligent, this would be the educated, this would be the people like the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious elite, those who were self-righteous and proud of their knowledge. The Lord says, I praise you, Lord, that you devised a way of salvation where you just hid these things from those kinds of people. They don't see it. They don't see the glory of Christ. They don't see the beauty of salvation. They're hid from them. But on the other token, He says, I praise you, Lord, that you have revealed them to infants. Who are the infants? Right? The disciples, the seventy. Let's start right there. The 70, the 12. But going either further than that, these would be people who don't have any pride in their own knowledge. This is the common person. Fishermen. Tax collectors. Prostitutes. Lepers. People that are scorned by others. People that know that they have no righteousness to commend them before God. They have no supposed goodness. And so they don't depend upon their own self-righteousness. They have no pride in their own knowledge or pride of their own goodness and so they flock to Jesus Christ and to them it has been revealed. This way of salvation through Christ has been opened up to their view and they see it and they come to him. So here we have Jesus describing a hiding of truth from some and a re- revelation of truth to others. And notice why God designed salvation this way. Did you pick up on that at the end of the verse? He says, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Have you ever wondered why God saves one and not another? (laughs) I have too. (laughs) The only only reason that we get from Scripture is this reason that Jesus proposes, because it is well-pleasing in God's sight to do it this way. If you read the book of um, Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about God saving a people according to the good pleasure of his will. It's God's good pleasure to do it this way. And that's all, he doesn't explain it. He doesn't go into the explanation. Has that ever frustrated you? It has me. Lord, would you just please explain a little bit more here? I, I mean, you've given me the big picture, but I'd like the little picture too. I'd like some details. But he doesn't do that. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God, he says. Well, I'm nobody, Lord. I'm just a bit of dust. And that's the right response. Compared to him in his glory and his majesty and his greatness, we are nothing. We don't deserve an explanation and God has not chosen to give us one. This is the only explanation we have. It pleased God to do it this way. Whether we like it or not is not the issue. God liked it. And he set it up this way. And God runs the universe, not us. And so we have to bow to him. Okay, so this is the reason why it's well-pleasing in his sight. Now, I want you to focus on this word revealed. It's hid from the wise and intelligent. It's revealed to infants or to babes. Now, that's exactly opposite of what we would have expected, right? We would have expected the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees to know when the Messiah came because they're the experts of the scripture, the experts in the law. And yet it went right over their heads. Most of them died in unbelief. Christ is praising God for his sovereignty that he devised a plan that was contrary to what we would have expected. We would have expected that God would have chosen Esau over Jacob because Esau was the firstborn. And that's just the way things worked back then. The firstborn got an extra dose of the inheritance, double portion. He was sort of the sort of the ruler within the family. He, he, he had the, the rights to the inheritance. But yet God deliberately bypassed Esau and put that blessing on Jacob and it was through Jacob that the Messiah came. I think God likes to, to foil the plans of men and do things his own way to demonstrate his majesty and his sovereignty that we'd get a big glimpse of how, how great he is and that he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be, we can't tie him around our finger. God is God. And God does what God wants to do. Now, we're going to look at a lot of scripture just to help you understand this idea of spiritual things being revealed in case you've you've never seen this before. John 6, and 45. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, we get that, don't we? No one can come to Jesus and to come to Jesus means to believe, if you just read it in context, read verse 37. So no one can believe on Christ or come to Christ for, for salvation unless he's drawn by the Father. But what in the world does that mean? What does it mean for God to draw someone to Christ? Well, look at the last part of the, or the next verse here. And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. What does it mean to be drawn by the Father? It means that God teaches you. You hear His voice. He teaches you and you learn from Him. There is something that He reveals to you or teaches a person that not everybody learns, not everybody is taught. Remember in Matthew 16, when Peter says, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus turns around to him and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, you didn't come up with this yourself. And none of these other apostles came up with it either and told you about it. It Didn't come from flesh and blood. This came from your father who's in heaven. God revealed to you that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. First Corinthians 2.14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness to him. Now, what do we mean by natural man? An unbeliever. An unsaved person. An unregenerate person. A person who's never experienced the work of the Spirit to give them new life, new birth. They're dead in their sins. No matter how moral they are or how religious they are. They're natural. They're not supernatural. They're natural. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit because they're foolishness. It's stupid to him. It's foolish. He doesn't see any glory in these things. And he cannot understand them. It's not that it's a little bit difficult. It's an impossibility. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually appraised and the natural man doesn't have the Spirit. So he can't appraise. What does it mean to appraise something? Okay, your house. You get an appraiser. What's he doing? He's setting the value. He's saying, this is what your house is worth. The natural man cannot see the value of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see it. Because there has to be a work of the Spirit on your eyes to open them to see his glory. Or you're never going to see the glory of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians four in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not, what? See the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is blinded. Unbelievers, they don't see Christ's glory. Now I can take a blind man to the most beautiful vista, the Grand Canyon, and say, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that awesome? And he'll say, what are you talking about? Isn't what awesome? Well, well, just look. It's right over there, the Grand Canyon. I don't see anything. And that's the case with people who don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't see the glory of Jesus. You can talk to them about Jesus all day long and tell them how beautiful He is and they'll just go away unchanged unless the Spirit of God accompanies your witness to that person. And if the Spirit comes, then their eyes are open and they see. Let's keep reading. Jesus is the image of God. And now we're going to verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. When did God say that? When he created the world, right? Let there be light. For God, who is the creator, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's the same one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's saying the same thing. Satan has blinded certain people. They don't see the glory. What God does is he comes and shines in the hearts of other people who formerly were blinded. But now their hearts, not just their, their mental faculties, but their heart, the whole person comes alive to God and they see Jesus as his glory and they're never the same. They'll never be the same if that this work of the Holy Spirit takes place in their life. They're transformed. There's a new work on the inside. Regeneration takes place. God takes out the old heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Everything's become new. So something's been revealed. The glory of Christ has been revealed. How about Ephesians 4.18-21? The Gentiles are darkened, Listen to these, these adjectives. The Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you didn't learn Christ in this way. Watch this here. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him. What does that remind you of? Didn't we just read a scripture about hearing Him, and being taught in Him? John 6.45 No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And then he goes on to say, But you are taught of my Father. You heard and learned from my Father. There's been a revelation given to you. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.26-31 This is a longer passage, but... Let's let's go over it quickly. For consider your calling, brethren. Who's he writing to? Christians, brethren, saints. Consider your calling, saints, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. But by whose doing were they in Christ Jesus? By his... It wasn't of your doing. It wasn't your choice, your will, your faith, your repentance that, I mean, you did believe and you did repent, but it wasn't your doing that got you into this place. It was his doing according to the scripture by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Now notice certain things about this passage three times. Paul said that they have been chosen three times he tells them that. Then he tells us that there are not certain there're not very many of this particular class that were chosen. What's the class? The wise, the mighty, and the noble. That's just what Jesus said, right? Father, I thank you that you have hid these things from the wise and intelligent. Paul's just echoing what Jesus said. Lord, you didn't choose very many. Someone once said, I'm so glad for that letter M, because this was the Countess of Huntingdon who was a rich, wealthy, famous person, but she was a Christian. I'm so glad for the letter M, she said. There were not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has revealed these things to infants, to the foolish, to the weak, to the base, to the despised, to the things that are not. God has taken delight in choosing and saving a people whom we wouldn't expect to be the favorites of heaven. You and me. <laughs> How many superstars are in this room? Not a single one. There's no multimillionaires here, as far as I know. There's no world famous people. There's no um, there's no super geniuses like Einsteins. I mean, we're pretty common, ordinary people that God has chosen to save. This is the most exalted joy. You see, when you come to this kind of joy, rejoicing on who God is, you take a big leap forward. Because in the first kind of joy, you're rejoicing on what you've done for the Lord. In the second kind of joy, you're rejoicing on what the Lord has done for you. In the third kind of joy, you're forgetting about yourself altogether. You don't even come into the picture. You're rejoicing on who God is. God himself. In the first kind of joy, you're rejoicing that you were successful in ministry. So it has something to do with you being successful, right? Second kind of joy, you're rejoicing that you were saved. But in the third kind of joy, you're flat out, you've lost. The self is gone. You're not even thinking about self. You're enveloped with God. This is the kind of joy I think we're going to have in heaven. This third kind, where we've forgotten about ourself. We are so self-conscious, aren't we? And so self-centered. But in heaven, I, I think, my I guess I'm speculating at this point, but take it for what it's worth. I think self-consciousness is, is pretty much gone. Self-centeredness is gone because we are passionately enveloped with God and passionate about Him. And that's why the worship of heaven is so explosive. You read the book of Revelation and you think, man, these guys are pretty excited. <laughs> They're on their faces. They're shouting. And the shout is like a, a waterfall, like Niagara Falls crashing down. You think, why are they so excited? Because they've lost the self perspective and they're consumed with God and they see Him in His beauty and His glory and they can't help themselves. So I believe this is the most exalted kind of joy. Now, but you say, you want me to be joy in the fact that God chooses whom He will and pass over whom He will? How can I possibly be joyful about that? I'll tell you the truth. When I first started to read these kind of things in the Bible, I wasn't joyful. It made it made me kind of, um, how would I put it? I was afraid. I was troubled. I was disturbed. And I thought, this can't be the truth. I must be misreading my Bible. This can't be right. And then I told Debbie, would you... Look at these verses with me. And she said, well that, that that can't be my God. My God doesn't do things like that. And so both of us had the same reaction when we read to God's freedom to be God to choose whom he will or to pass by whom he will. But I can tell you the truth, it's one of the things I rejoice in most now. I I love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I I love that doctrine. Now you say, well, how could you possibly rejoice in that? Let me just ask you something. Was God, typically people say it's unfair, it's unjust. It's unjust for God to do this. Was God unjust when the angels fell and he gave them no opportunity of redemption? He passed by all the angels, all of them are going to be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Was that unjust? Was God doing anything that they did not deserve? No. No so why would god be unjust to pass by every member of the human race because all of us are deserving of judgment ourselves is there anybody here who's not deserving of hell if you've committed one sin in your life you're deserving of hell and we've committed a sin every day of our lives probably many many sins our sins are like a pile that go to the moon you can't count them can't number them just Not just the external sins, count all the heart sins of pride and covetousness and bitterness and all these things that well up within us all the time, selfishness. We are all deserving of God's judgment. So here's the thing. If God is God and God is free to do as He pleases, God has one of three choices. Either He can cast a whole lot of us into hell, or He can save every member of the human race, or He can save some. Right? He's got one of three choices to make. If God does the first one and the whole world is cast into hell, God is still just. God has done no injustice to any member of this race because we deserve it. If God saves every member of this race, that's his prerogative and he can do that if he wants to. But what we read in scripture is he hasn't decided to do that. He's decided to save some. He's decided to have mercy on some. He's decided to write some in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Maybe this statement will help you. It helped me early on when I was struggling with these concepts. And uh, there we go. There it is. You got it, Olin. Election damns no man who ought to be saved, but saves many men who ought to be damned. Try to memorize that statement. Election. If If you're not familiar with that word, it means God's choice of everlasting life. God's choice damns no man who ought to be saved because there isn't anyone like that. But it does have mercy on and save many, many, many people. A multitude no man can number, according to the book of Revelation, who ought to be damned. So why didn't God decide to save everybody? That's usually the question we get asked. Because we, being human, we have sympathy for other human beings and we want... We don't want anybody to punish the torments of hell, right? It just, that's... We can't, we can't think about that very long before going crazy. And so that's always the question. Well, why didn't God just save everybody? And we think it's amazing that He decided only to save some. Well, if we get, turn this thing around and look down on this human race from God's perspective, get the helicopter view, you know, get up there and look down on this race of fallen, rebellious people shaking their fists in God's face, the really The real astounding thing is that God would decide to save any of us. We don't really believe what the Bible says about us, or else we would have God's perspective on the matter. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together we become fruitless. We're corrupt through and through, totally depraved, meaning every faculty, every part of our being is affected with this thing we call sin. We're born with it, and we never get rid of it. Even if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with sin your entire life. We're shot through with it. And God looks down, and he sees a bunch of worms, filthy, writhing worms. Now, you like to see yourself as a beautiful deer or something. God looks at you and sees a worm down there. Why would God pick any of those worms? because he wants to show his attribute of mercy and grace and love. Just to be just is not enough, because that only displays a part of God's glory. God wants to display the full orbs of who he is. So he wants to display his graciousness and compassion and love and his sovereignty all at the same time, and so he's come up with this plan to do it. Jonathan Edwards was another guy who struggled with the sovereignty of God. Have you guys ever heard of the name Jonathan Edwards? Let me explain to who you. you have to go back two or three hundred years. He lived in the early 1700s in New England, uh, New Hampshire, Connecticut. Uh, the city, the little town was called Northampton. There was a mighty revival going on, and like from 1935 to about 1941, they call it the First Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards was being used greatly in that revival. And this is what he had to say. He's considered probably one of, if not the greatest, philo- um philosopher and theologian that America has produced. He said, From childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, leaving them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. Why well, I, I can understand why, can't you? <laughs> it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seem to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and His justice, and thus eternally disposing of men according to His sovereign good pleasure. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it, in the most absolute sense, in God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy and hardening whom He will, God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Here's a man who went through the journey that almost everyone goes through when they see this first in the Bible and they're, they they can't believe it. They're, they... they They run from it. But it kind of grows on you. At least I know it has in my life. In fact, once you see it, you start to see it all over the scripture. Whereas before you just read your Bible and didn't even notice it, now you see it everywhere. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever rejoiced in God's sovereignty? Have you ever got flat on your face and just thank God that He chose you to eternal life? Now, you can't do that unless you're a Christian, unless you know that He saved you by His blood and by His righteousness and that you've been born again of the Spirit. But if you have been regenerated by the Spirit, you can praise God and thank Him for that and rejoice in the the plan of God that He's foiled the self-righteous and proud and He's devised a way to exalt Himself and to lavish grace on sinners who didn't deserve it or couldn't ever earn it. So I want to encourage you, when you go to the Lord in prayer, go into your prayer closet and shut the door, just take time to rejoice in who God is. In God himself, just forget about yourself for a while, and just repeat to yourself who God is. Lord, you're mighty. You're all-knowing. You're infinite in your wisdom. You are just, Lord. You are sovereign and do as you please. You're merciful and gracious and compassionate. And just start to announce these things and let your heart fill with joy and make this a regular part of your time spent before God. I just want to close with uh, scripture from Daniel chapter 4 verse 35. This is what Daniel said. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Let's pray. I do ask, Lord, that you would help us to forget about self and to find ourselves consumed with you and to allow clear statements of the word of God to be embraced by us, to believe them, to hold fast to them. I pray, Lord, that you would give Those here who are your children, a love for your sovereign grace. I pray, Lord, that we would go beyond just delighting in and rejoicing in things that we've been able to do for you, and even for what you've done for us to delight in you yourself and who you've revealed yourself to be. Thank you for revealing Jesus Christ in his glory. To us and Lord I pray specifically for any that are here right now to whom they've never received this revelation of the glory of Christ oh God we beg you we plead with you on behalf of Christ we beg you Lord open eyes send your Holy Spirit even right now Lord give them the ability to see what is there that they can't see that that would change them forever. It would cause them to run from sin, to hate sin, and to love righteousness, and to long after you, and to delight in you, and look forward to spending eternity with you. Lord, do that work in hearts of people right now. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.